If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans. It's Denisha. And this is Aaron. This is a special episode. This is the first one that we are doing that we are actually showing our face because this is a training. So today we're going to be talking about addressing collective trauma and police brutality in the workplace. And just so that you know, this is an anti-racist, Black affirming, Black liberation and uplifting training. So the first thing I want to say before we get into this, though, Erin, um, I don't know, you've probably been online and I know you've been online, we've been talking, <laughs> but you've been online, you've been seeing... Um, behavior analyst um, reacting to what's happening right now, reacting to each other, our verbal behavior um, in terms of attacking the events that's occurring um, in the larger world. We're here today because of um, the protests that have erupted all over the world because of the murder of George Floyd. And I, we started this podcast for a reason. Years ago, when I was looking for a place in a space, we had Behaviors for Social Responsibility, which they are a great resource to us, but this space didn't exist, right? And so not on a larger scale, not enough to say we have our people to do this um, anti-oppression work with. And so I, I feel like it's important to remind behavior analysts that we're newbies in this game. Our, I have been, you know, encouraged by B.S. Skinner to do this work, but we hadn't really picked up the clarion call that he gave us years ago. And so I think for behavior analysts, now is the time that we, one, we let this, this moment define like who we want to be absolutely and we figure out how we want to show up but we also need to go ahead and remember that we need to look to what's already been done we need to read outside of our fields um and so a few starting places for you if you are a behavior analyst if you're not a behavior analyst and you're watching this um we are speaking specifically to our field members but this training is for everyone if you work somewhere this training is for you but Behavior analysts, please read outside of our fields. Do not show up thinking that you're going to save the world without addressing how the world is talking about this, without knowing how the world is talking about this. 
I will give you a couple ones. Um, freedom is a constant struggle. Start there. Angela Davis. Oh my goodness. We are behavior analysts and we think in a certain way, but I will tell you that activists have been thinking like us for so long. Angela Davis outlines what our criminal justice system needs to look like. She outlines it very similar. And we talked about it on this show with Gold Diamond's work and also with Skinner's work um, about how to reimagine the prison system. Also, um, from there, you can learn how you can help in the lens of social justice activism, not from a lens of you're a behavioral scientist and you think that you know everything. Um, secondly, so you want to talk about race, Ijioma Alua. She speaks like a behaviorist. That's a conversation I was having with Evelyn after we both read that a couple months ago. And to see like the interconnectedness, please read, please read. Don't do this by yourself. Do not reinvent the wheel. Do not dismantle the work that has been done by black people, by black indigenous people, by people of color. Don't erase their work. Um, another one, the Kumbahee River Collective, Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, Paolo Fieri, The uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Look at it. And if you have not read Skinner's work yet, go back and read it. Um, and so today, let me, I guess, introduce myself fully because I'm going to be running this training. Uh, my name is Denisha Jingles. I am um, a licensed and certified behavior analyst. And um, I have graduate coursework in trauma. I, my background is a mental health counseling. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology. I've been trained in trauma-focused CBT certificate. I know if you're a behavior analyst, you're like, CBT? Yes, CBT. <laughs> um, obviously, I have my own personal data to tell me or inform my own life, anecdotal data. My lived experience is an experience that can be measured. Um, I'm a business owner. And I have studied and taught social justice anti-oppression framework for over 13 years now. And I read a lot of those books that I gave you. So I'm and I have a grounding in movement work. Um, and I've also talked on our podcast about other groups that I rally with and that I organize with. So Gathering for Justice and Justice League and YIC are, is my um, activist home. So that's a little bit about me. And just going back to, I guess, the work, I feel like I've already been rambling for a bit, but. No, but one thing <laughs> I want to say is like, if you're talking about dissemination and we're talking about like scope of competence, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just, you just crushed it for real. <laughs> um, and I know you've talked about like merging those two worlds for so long and how they've been so separate. Um, and I just, I don't know when you talked about putting this training, it's just, it seems like you list it off. I was like, are you going to bring somebody on to talk about this? And you're like, no, like I'm going to do this. I have this and this. And then the text message, it was just, it was beautiful. So I don't know. It's just, uh, I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just so y'all know, uh, Aaron's going to be running our slideshow for us today. So if I say move to the next one, just keep up with us. But, um, yeah. You can go ahead and move to the next one, <laughs> the next Sorry, slide. I kind of like jumped the gun. You started talking about books and I was like, oh, I know the next slide is books, but. Yeah, no problem. So um, these are a few books, um, or sorry, a few reading lists. So behavior analysts, start here, please. Um, Ibram Kendi, 
created this full reading list, an anti-racist reading list, um, Bria Baker, which she's been on the show before. Um, she had a two-part series on our show. She's with the She was with the Women's March. She's with Justice League NYC with me. That's my sister in the movement. Um, she also is with... I don't want to butcher all of her affiliations because she she does a lot of work. Bria is the epitome of a social justice activist. And I'm so, you know, just grateful to be in the movement with her. So she's been on the show before, two-part series, and she's actually coming back for a special episode next week. So look out for her um, episode and also go to her reading list. Um, it was covered by Elle Magazine, LUSA. So 20 Essential Black History Anti-Racist Reading List is hers. Um, Sarah Sophie Flicker and Alyssa Klein are two members of the Women's March. Um, I saw this shared um, on our um, Facebook page. So bit.ly backslash anti-racist resources. Bit.ly is not capitalized. So um, they are case sensitive. So make sure that you put that in there, right? And then also Beautiful Humans podcast, which you are listening to this from our podcast. We're compiling a behavior analytic reading list as well for behavior analysts who want to consult the research that has been done, the research that we've talked about on this show and the research that we have yet to even talk about on this show. So um, look out for that as well. And I do want to add one thing because again, given the current circumstances and um, I don't know, being online and reading things, just because you go read um, uh, how to be an anti-racist and you still feel lost in terms of, I don't know what to do, that's because you haven't read enough. <laughs> I still feel lost and that's okay. You know, it is a process. You can't read one how-to guide, how to be an anti-racist and think that you are now like on the other side and you can go be a one, like an activist like that. So I, I don't know. Again, <laughs> go look at these reading lists. I think that that's, that that's it. Yeah. And one thing I, I want to say is that, yeah, you could read a book and go be an activist, but how, are you going to be an activist? You're going to probably show up and listen, right? And be guided by the people who have come before you and have done the work. Um, so you can, you can activate, but you also need to respect the space and learn from others. So, um, but that's definitely a great point is, you know, we're, there's so many components to this. This is 400 years in the making. Mm -hmm. you're not gonna solve it by reading one book we've said it before like if if we could have if it was so easy to solve we would have done it already right you're, yes behavior analysts I want to remind us you're not the first smart person to exist in this world so you know we have to get connected we have to get grounded with ideology and and help in that way like yes we have tools but we also have ears to listen and, and, and people have been guiding this work. So yeah. Real fast mm -hmm. on these reading lists. Cause I, I've looked at them, but I don't have them memorized. Is there anything that um, is specific to like critical race theory? I know it's like embedded within this, but any like sp specific book. Um, so you want to talk about race? I think is embedded with critical race theory. Um, and I couldn't tell you all of the books, but like some of them even are, so let's say Ibram Kendi has, So Their Eyes Were Watching God. That's not going to be a how-to book for you. 
like that's going to be a book that you start to like see some of the nuances between black life. And so that's important too. For those who only rally for black lives when it's black trauma, that's a problem. If you can't rally for me and my joy and respect my experience as a full living person on this earth, that's a problem. So like, I think it's important for us to see that we don't live our life in just that dichotomy. Like there's so many different sectors that comes with the black experience. And so if there's going to be critical race theory type stuff, there's going to be other theories, but then there's also going to be that connection with black life. Right. Cause it's so much more I, expansive than, than the trauma. Right. And that's what I keep saying to people is like, you know, this is great. All well and good. Like let you know, all of the movement right now, what are you going to do when that fades and that dies down? And it's not just around the hard times. It's not when some tra tragedy occurs like this. It's, um, it's, it's the flip side. Of, it's the whole, like you're saying, the whole complete person is what are you doing to uplift them on a daily basis? Exactly. Know? And so I, I said this um, before, not on the show, but I'm going to say it here now. Like, honestly, if you, if moments like this cause you to see how someone thinks about black people or black experiences you already know especially this is those allies folks that are not black that call themselves allies. i need to know who you are before you see an experience like this because i don't want to have to look for your silence and say well why aren't you saying anything and then make that be an indicator that we're not friends i also don't want to have to look for that moment for you to finally acknowledge what I've been saying myself. It shouldn't take that for you to recognize that we've had enough. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't take a moment that the whole world has erupted for you to finally look at yourself and say, how have I contributed to this? I am glad when these moments come and more people are awakened to this. But if you've been around Black bodies, you have no excuse. None to not have tapped into that. So I'm not going to spend too much time there, but I'm just going to say that blanketly. Um, if you've listened to this podcast, you know that we speak radical truth and sometimes that truth doesn't feel good. And we come from a perspective of acceptance and commitment. And sometimes you have to be able to sit with these feelings that you have about yourself, these feelings of shame that come up. And I'm not going to shame you and call you a terrible person for it, but I am going to call that out. I'm going to call that behavior out of you being complicit in the system. So this training also was not created for white allies or white accomplices. This is a black affirming space. However, I do realize that our field is predominantly white. There are a lot of white people that are listening to this episode. So I do want to make sure that the information that's imparted is useful for anyone. Um, but the purpose of our work has been for marginalized groups oppressed voices and that's what we really up with in this space that's beautiful no and what i what i was going to say is you're saying about like being silent if your inclination right now is to turn this podcast off and this episode off like that is your privilege and your ability to opt out um and that's part of what we're talking about so um the uncomfortable space if some of these things are hard and um then you probably need to keep listening right yeah <laughs> 
Erin, I just realized that you did not introduce yourself and I'm sorry. So no, but that's the thing. Like that you have taught me so much is like, there are times when you just need to shut up and listen and do what somebody's telling you to do. Like that is, that is my role right now. I don't have, um, all the experience, all that you do. This is not, um, I don't know. My job right now is just to shut up. All right. Is that good? Can I do that? People know me. If they're like, you can go to other podcasts and you can read the bios on the, you know, Facebook page, all that stuff. This is, this is, this is your time. Yep. All right. Bet. Roll it to the next one then. All right. So like I said, this is a CE event. So if you are listening to this every once in a while, I will say what the first buzzword is. If you are a Patreon meaning that you support our, our um, podcast by subscribing um, to our Patreon account, which is www.patreon.com backslash beautiful humans. If you are a subscriber, then you can get a CE for this episode. Um, and so here are the things that we're going to talk about today. We're obviously talking about trauma um, and we're coming from a Black affirming lens and a Black perspective. So we're going to identify the difference between trauma racial trauma and collective trauma. We're also going to identify racial and collective trauma responses. Um, and we're going to brainstorm how to address issues in the workplace that affirm the experiences of Black people. And so when we got started, I said that today comes on the, the back of or on the shoulders of what's happening in the world right now. And so making sure to make that known that this presentation has been made for me and my community who all know this feeling too well, who've been here before. Um, and so, but we know what it's like to show up to the workplace as black and tired, black and angry, black and scared, black and frustrated, black and numb. All the feelings that come with seeing the trauma and the pain that we experience from our siblings who are brutally murdered by police, who are abused by police. And so that's what this presentation is for. So, you know, we talked about it earlier. George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. Um, and so in Minnesota, they have been using people power. That is the power of their protests to show us what, um, how they feel. And so um, you can move to the next one. <clears throat> All right. So before we get started, I want us to take a moment to think. Um, with this last instant of the tragic event, like this uh, brutal police murder or other state-sanctioned violence on Black individuals, consider what was it like for you at work? that same day or the following day that you got the news? Did anyone speak about it? Or did business continue as usual? If you're an agency owner or a business owner, I want you to consider what was your response to the tragic event that occurred? If you're an employee, consider what was your agency's response? Was there anything? Did your colleagues say anything to you? Did you say anything to your colleagues? And so once you've thought about your 
agency's reaction or your reaction, I want you to think about a shock and a tragic event like Sandy Hook, 9-11, Las Vegas. Think about COVID-19. Is there any difference in how your workplace showed up or responded to an event like Sandy Hook or 9-11 versus the response to seeing a Black person brutally murdered or hearing about a Black person brutally murdered? Is there any difference? Now consider if there is a difference, why would addressing an event that erupts and disrupts the entire world be any different in the workplace? So that's just a moment of reflection. You can scroll to the next one here. So I wanna start with why should this even be a topic in the workplace? Your reflection is probably already giving you thoughts of why that should be a topic in the workplace. But number one, we spend a lot of time at work. On average, and this is uh, using the Bureau of Labor Statistics information, on average, we spend 8.5 hours per weekday at work. We spend 5.5 hours working on the weekend day. A lot of our, who we are, a lot of the stories that we tell ourselves involve who we are at work. So it's important that if this is taking up a large part of our time, that we understand that that person is presenting itself in the workplace as well. So you can scroll to the next one. So um, another reason, I've said it before on this show, since I've been a working adult, I remember what it's been like with these events that occur. I remember you know, being in tears on my way to work. I remember feeling a weight on my chest and then having to abruptly response, interrupt and redirect so that I can go into the workplace. I had to shut my emotions off when I hit the entrance door. Then I have to look at the faces of my colleagues and think, do they know what I'm going through today? Do they even care? Could I talk about this? For years, I had to wait to figure out what can I say to my coworkers, and, and, that's, and I'll talk about shifting behaviors later, but is it even safe for me to be here today? Is it safe for me mentally to be in this space today? Um, and so that's part of that. We talked about, you know, having to show up as different, um, as a different way than who you are and shutting off parts of ourselves. But what's happening if you are an employer recognizing that what's happening in the external world is coming with your employees to the workplace. It has a direct impact on your employees. Um, and so you can go ahead, we're gonna go to the next reason. If you work in our field, I want you to consider the fact that your employees are working likely, if you're doing autism home-based services, they're going to places, they're going to homes, or even center-based services. Every time your Black employee leaves the house, they are technically at risk. And so when they're leaving your house to show up to your place of business, understand that there was a risk that was taken to even do that that day. They literally sacrificed their safety 
to show up each day in the world and your company. And so one of the examples here is Charles Kinsley. Kinsley, this happened in 2016. Now, Aaron, I said it before, when we were looking for spaces, they didn't exist. This happened in 2016. And our <laughs> quiet, people are just finding out about this in our field, about this instance in our field. Charles Kinsley was laying down in the street with his hands up and still was shot. And on top of that, the jury decided that the shooting was not an error or an accident. And so, but they ended up saying that it was a crime of negligence. And so the point is that Charles Kinsley left his house that day to go do work that we do with our clients and ended up with a bullet in his leg. We have to address it. You can scroll to the next one. Another one is, according to Walumba et al. and uh, Judge and Heller and Mount, um, two different, and I'll, I'll leave the reference list at the end of this, but when employees feel genuinely supported, they're more satisfied with their work and their job satisfaction increases. And so I know a lot of people are bottom dollar. So if this is you, then this is a reason why this should be a topic of the workplace. Um, I remember I used to leave work to go protest. I used to leave on my lunch break, sometimes take an extended lunch break to go protest. And one time I left with a coworker and he got arrested at the protest. And I remember being like, Oh my goodness, because I was leaving work. People didn't know what I was doing. And so I had to show back up at work without my coworker. And he was in jail for the next, until the next, he got out the next day, but he couldn't come back to work with me. And I had to tell the CEO. And I had a relationship with her, like, because I was in a supervisory position. But when she found out that he was arrested, she supported him and she said, good for you, good for y'all. Um, and so can you imagine what that feels like? Like, first I was scared. Cause I was like, oh my goodness, got to tell on myself. And then, oh my goodness, he, he might get fired. So I was scared for him. And then luckily this employer was just like, yeah, do the good work. And so that, that resonates and that resonated with us staying at that job or feeling like we could stay at that job a little longer. You can go can to ask you a question real fast mm -hmm. yep. about that. So thinking about, cause you and I have been at a, I guess it wasn't necessarily a protest. I don't know what the word we landed on that at the Supreme court for an action. An yeah. Action. Thank you. Um, and you know, we were talking about once we don't need our certification like that, like we want to take part in that. And, and I don't know, I think that's something that we need to, as a field, do better in. And if we are, there's a difference between violence and nonviolence. And if you are doing something that is nonviolent um, to change policy to better humanity, like why, why should that be um, putting you at risk? Yeah, honestly, I do feel like so I think it's a fine line too, because we could be at a protest 
and or and there might be a difference between your charges and my charges and we've done the same thing where my charges say violence and yours does not um and so but i do think it should be a thing in our fields and i've wondered about this for so i was telling my father that yesterday because i went out to protest yesterday and i had to let him know i'm not getting arrested today i can't get arrested because i'll lose my certification um and my license so i can't do that and I wish that I could, like, I wish that I could, but that's how I'm going to retire. You know, we talked, we had that moment, but behavior analysts, this is a moment too, for us to consider how we can show up because nonviolent protests, nonviolent resistance, the movement needs us. But also I go to say again, even though we start out as nonviolence because the system of how it is could end up being deemed as violence. Um, and then also let me say, I'm not going to go there. Actually, I'm going to, um, <laughs> use some restraint in this moment. But um, but that's something to consider too. If people are rallying up against a social cause like this, um, to be able to have that space to do it as a field. All right, so I wanna just give a little caveat before I keep going. This is not a training for employers and colleagues to feel as if they've checked off a box. This is not a training to pretend to show up for Black people, Black colleagues and employees. Responding to collective trauma is going to take more than just a blanket office statement. It's going to require ongoing cultural practices. And that's what we're already talking about anyway, Erin, that allow for individuals to have a safe space to respond to their real life concerns. Authenticity is key. So smoke and mirrors is a farce. Don't need it. Lip service is fruitless when there's no action. Your Facebook statuses, thanks not enough. Appreciate it, but not enough. Um, and so this show, we, I'll say it 50,000 times. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. I'll say it till I'm, I've gone. There's no more breath in my body. I don't care about allyship. And I'll look you in your face in this mirror now. I don't care about allyship. I don't care that you, you believe or that you think that I'm a good person. I don't, I don't care that you think that I deserve a space. If you don't work, for me to have that space, we have nothing to, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm not focused on the basic behaviors. I do understand that um, we are creating behavioral cusp when we have these conversations. So folks can do more things based on the information or this one skill that they've learned. I appreciate that. Um, but there's, there's just always more work to do. And it's a commitment to that, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, defining your value and moving in alignment with that ongoing ongoing and ongoing after the cameras have turned off after this moment has passed okay that's my caveat you can go <laughs> Alrighty. so what we know for right now is that black people are shifting according to dickens and chavez uh 2017 black people are using different coping strategies such as identity shifting in the workplace to protect themselves against experiences of discrimination invisibility and marginalization and because of that, daily negotiation, work life, which spills over to afterlife, becomes psychologically exhausting and stressful. And so Black people are shifting as a response to trauma. And we talked about it on our last show. Well, I, I gave one of my rants on our last show that I am tired of our conversation needing to rest with Black people and how we need to shift and accommodate white supremacy. That is not why we're here. We're not here to live in context to white people. 
that's not how we're supposed to be living our lives. I don't want to have to think about, um, is this safe for me? And how do I make it more safe by putting a smile on my face? So this white person knows that I am a safe black person. No, but we, we are shifting our behaviors. That is what's happening. So I do want to call that for what it is. And what's happening is that it's producing an internal conflict and it's contribute and it can contribute based on this uh, research article can contribute to distorted perceptions of the self. And so that's going back to what I was saying about like living within a context of whiteness, like who I am exists as a context of who you are. And, and, to just be frank, white people don't have to live like that. So that's, that's oppression. So um, instead of us shifting, we need to focus on how to change environmental conditions that makes this shift necessary. Because shift is a behavior that's a, a response to conditions that are already in place. Um, so you can go to the next next slide can we, can we talk yep. real fast like in in terms of because people may have heard the like the term cultural assimilation mm-hmm. is that like would that be relevant for like is that i just want to make that connection for people that sometimes um you know we hear that that and i was told just recently in a class that cultural assimilation um is not a bad thing and that um and i don't even remember the exact rationale for for why that is but um but uh or why it was said that it was it was um like adaptive uh like culture and cultural practices and um but like you're saying it's it's harmful you know and and essentially you have to change yourself and who you are when you leave your home or even in your home now hell i mean it's you know like there, mm-hmm. there's fear people are being, are being shot in their own homes like that's not even a safe place anymore mm-hmm. and so um when you're having to shift yourself beyond that like that there's nothing um at least in my opinion there's nothing that is beneficial for that because of the underlying stress and like you're saying trauma that that comes with that mm-hmm. yeah uh Absolutely. If you're a behavior analyst right now, we're learning what assimilation, what happens when you try to make people assimilate. The folks who are anti our field currently, I mean, they're talking about some real stuff, but they're also, that's assimilation, right? They're, they're upset with individuals who have attempted to make them fit into a box that we said was normal. So why assimilation is saying that we have to fit into what you consider as normal, which is whiteness. I'm, and so, yeah. Um, so we're doing like for new folks, like this is our, this is our show and our dialogue. So you are getting our C's, but this is our conversation too, that we have just like on a regular basis. And so some of that's going to be our rants, um, useful rants. What do we call them? I forget. I think Warner gave us a term for that. Oh, we'll have to go back and look to at what they Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so go ahead and move to the next one, please. Thank you. So now we're going to talk about just what is trauma. So trauma um, has been studied, obviously, in the mental health field. Um, and so trauma is defined as an emotional response to a distressing or disturbing event. So an emotional response as a behavior analyst, not all of us. I really need to say that because 
Skinner was a radical behaviorist. He believed in private events. So to the methodological <laughs> behavior <laughs> analyst, <laughs> um, need to remind you that um, emotional responses are events. They're private events. And so they're, they're observable and measurable. Um, but trauma is a response to an event. And so this could be um, an event and such as assault, abuse, serious vehicular accidents, war combat, natural disasters can cause, can um, lead to emotional responses. And then witnessing or hearing about traumatic events. And so secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. Um, when just, I have the root word of trauma listed there, but that's derived from um, ancient Greek, meaning that just injury or a wound. And so I think that's a beautiful way to consider that for our methodological behavior scientist analyst. Um, injury or wound, one that you can likely see um, on a person, like hopefully there's some transformation of stimulus functioning happening there where you can understand that a wound still hurts the person that's impacted. Um, so you can go to the next slide and talk about the impact of trauma. Um, and so these right here, obviously emotional dysregulation, if we were considering that for a client, we would say, what does that mean? And then we would operationally define that for that person. Um, but that could mean, you know, they are having a hard time going through their own emotions, right? And so at one moment, I'm sad. One moment, I, I can't um, get out of this, this feeling of sadness um, or and so just not being able to kind of like regulate ourselves, uh, numbing, having physical symptoms. And I'll, I'll talk about physical symptoms on another slide too, but sometimes we have somatic symptoms, physical symptoms that show trauma for us. Um, sometimes they trauma shows themselves with sleep disturbances. Once again, if you're talking about trauma for your individual, it's like understanding what that is for that person, because each one of us, not all of us are going to have all of the components that are listed on this list. And so um, sleep disturbance, what does that mean? Like, am I sleeping too much or can I not sleep at all? Um, and so you could, um, you know, be detached from your thoughts and your behaviors and your memories. Um, some folks have like gastrointestinal issues, cardiovascular issues, neurological issues as well. Um, some folks, uh, suffer from respiratory issues as a response to trauma. Um, also for cognitive alterations, like uh, traumatic experience can affect the or alter the way that we think. Um, there's actually studies about trauma altering our brain. And so, um, and I won't go all the way into those, but like how our neurons fire. Um, and just thinking about that, even from an RFT perspective, Think about the private events that can occur, about the derived relational responding that can be happening based upon um, different uh, components of the trauma, the person that was involved in the trauma, the place that you were at when the trauma happened. And so like our brain um, is creating new, net, new frames of network or new networks of framing. Anyway. Um, and so this kind of like colors how we see the world. And so 
uh, you know, from the outset, when a traumatic events happen, it could change how you see, like I said, the world, it, it could change how you see other people. It helps you navigate life. There's more new stories that have been, are being told to yourself, new rules that you're creating. I can't go here anymore. I can't do this thing anymore. The last time when we had Dr. Ferris on the show, um, she was talking about black people can't do this anymore. And I responded to that and I said, you know, Black people can. Um, it's because with the conditions that inhibit, that uh, enable that uh, thought process. So new rules are being created because of the trauma. Um, and then also like hyper arousal. It's like um, our body, our brain, sorry, is going to prepare us for more um, moments like this. And so now it's like this hyper arousal and like wondering when it's going to happen. And now I need to prepare myself so that it doesn't happen again. Um, and just thinking that it's going to always be present or present enough that I have to move my behaviors around it. Um, and so, so yeah, um, other physical symptoms though, like muscle tension, um, can occur as well. And one thing about trauma, it has been shown that these symptoms can persist for years. Um, after the trauma occurs. So you can go ahead and go to the next one. So now I want to talk about then racial trauma. Um, and so racial trauma is it's specific that we talk about trauma separated from racial trauma. Um, there's overlaps. All of this is going to have overlap, but then now we're able, to, we're able as behavior analysts to bring in more context to this trauma. Um, and so these are, this is defined as reactions to dangerous events related to real or perceived experiences of racial discrimination. So I talked about how the brain goes into overdrive and now we are preparing for the next event um, as well. So real or perceived, if I perceive this, my mind is telling me that this is like this, um, there, I'm going to have a reaction to it. And so these could be threats of harm or injury, genocide, slavery, humiliation and shaming in racially motivated events, witnessing or hearing racial discrimination against others in their community, systemic oppression, police violence, and community violence. So let's talk a little bit about the impact of racial trauma as well. So you're gonna go ahead and see that a lot of these are overlapping, but some of these are new. Um, so anger is listed here. Um, and this was listed with Truong and, and Muesis, uh, sorry for butchering your name, 2012, uh, anger. And so as a behavior analyst, we're like, what is anger? Once again, from an individual level, define that. And so I want to make sure again to say that anger can be observable behaviors and a private event. Like those two things can exist at once. And so the observable behavior might, we're going to have that IOA and say like, um, so if I'm defining it as this anger is person kicks a trash can or kicks the door or um, puts their fist together and turns red, we can measure that private events, someone's going to label or tact what they're feeling, but those, that anger could probably be brought down to um, a feeling in their stomach or like their head is um, getting hot or something like that. And they can label that for us. Depression, once again, define that for your client. Headaches, 
upset stomach, chest pains, ulcers, back pain, nightmares, which rolls into sleep disturbance as well, which, which could roll into sleep disturbance, nausea, uh, intrusive thoughts. So going into labeling private events uh, again, um, shortness of breath, difficulty concentrating, lack of productivity and motivation, hyperarousal, and low self-esteem. So um, racial trauma has caused an impact on Black individuals. We talked about it somewhat on this show. We'll continue to talk about it. Internalized oppression is a thing, um, which impacts the way that we see ourselves and see the world. Um, the stories that we've been told about other people in relation to us can impact how we actually feel about ourselves. So you can go to the next one. Okay. So then what is collective trauma? Now, collective trauma has been studied. When it first started um, to be studied, we were talking about collective trauma in the mental health field from a racial lens. But then there was some generativity from it. And they were like, oh, you know, this applies. Like collective trauma is just reacting as a society or an event that's impacting a group of people or society, I should say. And so obviously some events that are related can be war, genocide, slavery, bombings, mass shootings, terrorism, migration, natural disaster. That's what's happening when we're like feeling that all together. And so the impact then of, collective trauma is that there's a passing down of culturally derived teachings and traditions about the threats that promote that group preservation. Think back to 9-11. Culturally derived teachings and traditions about threats. What happened after 9-11? How did we treat groups of people? How did we bond together as a group if you were american if you were american you bonded together with americans as the threat exists for you and there were teachings and traditions that then took place people thought to stand up against individuals who looked like they were from the muslim community so and then the last part of that, to promote group preservation. And so, um, so that's that connect. I want to just really drive home that part about like, there's a connection here with one another based on your cultural group. So moving on then to the impact of this collective trauma, I'm going to like kind of breeze through this because this a lot of this stuff has already come up with collective trauma. Some of it also is new, though, the hypervigilance. I, I just talked about that. Like this, this actually was reported from individuals after 9-11. Um, all of these um, responses are the impacts of collective trauma. Um, and so hypervigilance was one. And I, I want to go back to make it, I don't want to make it seem that the response to collective trauma looks like how I described it only for after how we did after 9-11, but I just did that to draw the connection of, that there actually is a connection that exists between individuals of the same class based on their shared trauma. Um, and so, yeah, um, isolation, withdrawal could occur, 
if you experience the collective trauma, like imagine being a, a plane survivor, plane crash survivor, um, you might isolate from other people who were not part of that trauma with you. You might withdraw. Um, and so, yeah, you look like you're going to say something. No, I just really appreciate like breaking down the different types of trauma. Cause I don't, I don't know how many behavior analysts who have not been through any sort of trauma-informed care training have ever maybe heard some of these things Mm -hmm. or even been able to make a connection because a lot of people have not experienced trauma to the degree that they would experience some of these things. Like maybe on a very small, um, small level, like after 9-11, like, yes, that was an attack on all of American and I don't know. I was in, I think, 11th grade or something. So I don't Mm -hmm. know if I completely understood the gravity of the situation. Um, But fear associated with that. And then what happens, like getting on a plane now, what that looks like. And um, but all of that is like relatively mild, I think, for most people um, who might not have been like directly impacted. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I'm just saying all of this. Cause I think for, for you or like things that I might um, experience within like the trans community or something like that, some of these things hit much, much closer to home. Cause it's like your, your group, which is smaller is mm-hmm. being targeted mm-hmm. so that, you know, as a whole. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Let me hear you. Um, so then I want to go ahead now and intersect racial and collective trauma because I said before, you know, there are uh, works that were done that I found that, you know, dated way back when that talked about collective trauma as a race, as a racial uh, issue. Um, but since collective trauma is general and there's definitely applicability in other groups, I want to make sure that we do intersect that with this, um, with this training. And so, um, there's a spillover effect when we experience things um, together, but then also that culmination that it's racial trauma that's already added to now this collective part. Um, From the research, this happens when things happen directly to our community, like to ourselves. So like if the folks in Minneapolis, for example, they're feeling their collective trauma from a very different lens. Um, And then there's also an impact when, like we talked earlier about the secondary, when we hear things online. And so going back to the racial trauma part of that, um, that we're responding to things that we see um, with our siblings. And so Bor et al. talked about um, the impact about on our health that happens um, one to two months after online exposure or re- or regional exposure, um, and so what his um, study was about was police killings, and he saw that mental health impacts were observed um, for their respondents who identified as black. They were not observed by respondents who identified as white, and. Um, <laughs> It was, and so I do want to also say with his study, he studied um, black police killings for unarmed black Americans versus not unarmed white Americans or armed black Americans. And so 
I think that part of his study is interesting. Um, one thing I will say, and I've said this for years, there's a problem when we report that this person was unarmed because in many states in the United States, it's okay to be armed. And why is that the narrative that we tell for Black people that they have to be unarmed for us to care? We can arm ourselves too, just like you. And so, um, so I think that that study is interesting for that, um, for that purpose, that um, more trauma or more mental health impact was um, reported when the person was unarmed. But when we think that they were armed I kind of, you know, and this is why we do the work that we do, that I do the work that I do um, to use ACT for anti-oppression because that's something that has to be um, thought about as well. Like what's happening there when we view a person as being culpable because they had an arm in a state that allows them to bear arms. When people can walk around in Walmart with rifles in this country. When people can go out in the middle of protests with the bow and arrow in this country. But if this person is black and they have a, a weapon, then we all we automatically, some of us automatically assume guilt. So um the next one to intersect, um, Tynes Willis, not just yet. <laughs> Tynes, it's okay. Tynes Willis and Stewart. Um, this is a recent study from 2019. The one for Boars et al. was 2018, which is still recent. Um said that exposure to trauma that's both directly um, given is like it's it happens directly and through the media outlets has implications for our health and so there's also evidence to suggest that exposure to specific race related trauma such as police brutality uniquely impacts us and so um, that was their own study but then obviously I just gave you the one that talked about the regional impact of police brutality so now you can go ahead and go to the next one. All right. So here, from a behavior analytic perspective, we put things in our three-term contingency model. Um, and so obviously with ACT, we get to do more of the four-term contingency stuff. But um, I'm just going to pull it from here, thinking about your, uh, as a Black person, when I'm going into the workplace, like what's happening, I witness and I hear a story of state sanctioned violence. Now, I just gave you the outline of trauma. And so this is just the behavior can be one, some, or all of these things. And if that's my response, that's my body's response, that's my behavioral response, I have physiological responses to trauma. I talked about it earlier. What then is the consequence to that, right? And so for generally with trauma, um, the individual starts to engage in survival behaviors. Um, and so what does this person do for themselves? How do they get their needs met? What do they do for, uh, to get their needs met from other people? And then essentially like, how are they, how are they helping to end the, like what's the result of the um, response to like, the the antecedent or the trigger in this uh, situation. So trigger is listed on here because we are talking about trauma. Trigger is a word to describe what an antecedent is for that person. So think about pulling a trigger that like, if you ever have pulled a trigger of a gun, like that drawback, the reaction, this trigger is... preceding these behaviors. And so the consequence that's going to be useful for that individual 
they know or they will need to to do work around knowing what helps them in that environment but they know likely they're responding however they want or however they need to because we do select behaviors on an individual level for a reason so whatever that response is if i feel like you know if a behavior is occurring or sorry if something is occurring and i am having or i'm feeling anger what's going to help me to get that out <clears throat> i need to go to the street and protest or some like so an individual is going to know what consequence they need um for that behavior to engage after they've engaged or had that behavior occur and so then what happens though when this is happening in the workplace or this is happening right before you go to work i talked about it earlier response interrupt redirect you have to stop your healing process you have to stop what's work what works for you um that you normally engage in to help you survive um but then and then you have to enact another survival behavior because now I'm doing this for a reason. I have to stop this because I need to be able to survive in the workplace. So I have to stop one survival behavior for that's going to help myself, um, but then also engage in another one that's going to also help. And we talked about like competing contingencies on the show before. I think that the, I would say that that has some something to do with it as well. But my point that I'm making here is that we have to just abruptly interrupt and move on to the next um, survival behavior. So you can go to the next slide. All right. So this comes uh, from a group called STARS um, who talked about the responses to trauma. And so obviously you see all these responses, physiological changes, feelings of powerlessness, shock, injury, all this stuff like trembling of heart. All this is happening. Oh, wow. I have to go to work. I have to answer phone calls. I have to run this department, supervise others, all while running behavioral programs, all while talking to parents, all while sitting in meetings, all while advocating for others, answering emails, smiling at coworkers, dealing with the microaggressions that were already existing before this time, dealing with the microaggressions that are happening because of this time, dealing with the racism that was already existing because of this time or during this time, and dealing with dismissals, being neglected, being ignored, and the list just goes on and on. I am dealing with this trauma all while dealing with the workplace. So we show up in a very unique way to work that other people do not have to, or maybe you do perspective take. And, um, and we talked about it before too, because we are anti-oppression. We do anti-oppression work here. So if you're part of a marginalized group, you understand exactly what I just said um, for yourself. Um, so yeah, you can move to the next slide. So then what's the, the, what do we do then, right? So this is happening, this antecedent, this trigger happens and this behavior comes up in the workplace, then what, what can be your solution as the workplace? I want to go, go into that um, point. What's your response to um, what's happening in the world? So you can go to the next slide. Okay, so leadership. From a behavioral approach, um, this was Skinner's, like B.F. Skinner talked about, um, well, actually, I wasn't, I'm just going to say like using his theory, um, leaders are responsible for shaping an environment, right? Um, and so we can enable employees to receive specific tasks if you are um, 
if you are a business owner, if you're a supervisor, how do you shape the response for your employee to perform, right? Is it through incentives or, you know, it, it could be small stuff like environmental, like what's your temperature on? But anyway, a, a leader is going to be responsible for shaping that, shaping that environment and rearranging the environment through antecedent and consequential strategies. You can scroll to the next one. On the other side of that, are still within that um, social learning approach. This um, this is Bandura's model. There's a typo on the screen. Sorry, y'all. Um, this is Bandura's model. So, oh wait, there's not a typo on the screen. I just didn't scroll for mine. Um, so this is social learning. <laughs> And this says that we view leadership um, as an interaction between employees, leaders, and the environment. So now, instead of the um, leader shaping the behavior, social learning says that the leader is part of the environment. And those behaviors are um, considered as well. You can go to the next slide. Another behavioral view um, given to us by Davis and Luthens um, says that in addition to the leader's ability to manage their own behavior, as well as the employees, there are environmental factors inside and outside of the organization that must be recognized and included in a comprehensive model of leadership. So I think this really brings us to the full scope of what this training is supposed to be about. Um, recognizing that you're showing up in your environment as a leader, your employees are showing up as a, as a part of the environment, you're recognizing that culture is part of that environment, the, the conditions, the antecedents, and the consequential strategies that you have, and then also the outside is important to what is happening on the inside. So you can scroll to the next one. So once again, um, how do we handle this? How do we handle this in the workplace? And I think it's important for us to handle this with care and dignity, and dignity in a way for black individuals um, after trauma. So once again, these behaviors are happening. Um, they're showing up to the workplace. And I really wanna make it a point to say here that there's no neutral side that you can be on time. Like you can't be on the neutral side. There's no neutral time. Let me back up. There is no neutral side that you can be on in times of injustice. And so your silence as a leader is a response. Your employees are looking at you. And unfortunately, we've been taught to habituate to our environments. Even if I've, I felt like initially I wanted to be able to say something, or do something, at some point, I stop because I take this as normal. And so your silence is likely going to be regarded as normal. So as a leader, you can decide if that's how you want your, your organization to run. You can go to the next slide. So what can you do? Um, acknowledge. First, Acknowledge it by bringing the outside into your space like your employees have brought the outside into your space. It's already there. So address it. Address it in a way that's not re-traumatizing to the individual. There's no need to share details or describe the event in, in full detail, not sharing videos in the workplace. That's not necessary. But you can address it um, uh, in, and let your employees know that you are aware of what's happening outside. So the first one was acknowledged. The next one is make space, not from a sympathy lens or a guilt lens. As a leader, you're gonna need to be able to, to work with your private events as well. Um, but at this point, 
your supervisees, your employees need empathy, trauma-informed empathy. So make space for people to get their needs met. I talked about it earlier. What are, what are then the consequences or what are the, what are, what happens when we are ha undergoing these behavioral responses to trauma? And so make room for them then to get those needs met for themselves. Allow them time to disconnect, allow them time to take off, allow space to not be okay for somebody to say, I'm not okay right now, um, to request affection if they need it and provide that consequence as requested. Your, your ignoring of the situation is very loud. And so the last one is, move to action. So all of this is well and good, but what will be your response outside of this? Um, how will you ensure that your response is not performative? You're not just, a, and so I talked about, this isn't just like a one-time checkbox thing. Um, how can your employees know that you value them outside of just them producing work for you? So I think a thing that you can do is let them know how you will help, right? Um, and so be ready to also act when you have other employees that disregard race, who say that it's socially significant, it has no place in the workplace. Be ready, ready to deal with that. And so I think as a leader, it's, it's important to think which side are you on? Because once again, I said neutrality is not a, is a side. <laughs> so and if you are being neutral, you have chosen your side. But the justice, what side are you on? Justice should always be your answer. Equity should always be your answer. Um, I want to go to the next one that kind of talks more about things that you could do. Um, and I developed this from listening to people that are most impacted. Um, you can develop solutions for your workplace and your community and tailor them to your needs so for example, in Minneapolis, organizers are asking for specific things. And when these big events happen, local organizers are always telling you what they need and how they want other people to show up. So you have a moment to consider that. How do you want to show up as a workplace um, for this event for your employees? And so, um, for example, like in Minneapolis, they're calling for people to propose and vote for a $45 million cut from police budget. So maybe we can have a conversation here because folks want to say, well, politics have no place in the workplace. Well, personal is political. And that's why I really want behavior analysts to consider reading the works of folks that are outside of our field. I mentioned earlier, when I, when I leave the house, if that is a form of, um, if that is a way of risk, or if that's a risk for me, then that means that my body is political. If I have to, if, if I have to shift my behaviors, if, I have to, if there's legislation written on my body in New York City, the data is there, not even New York City, all across the world, the data is there. Black and brown people are directly impacted for certain things and there's legislation written around that. And so your political stance, this isn't about voting for a candidate. This is about voting for issues that impact the person, 
we can't disconnect that. The personal is political. You are talking about politics when you when I step foot in that office because guess what? This political statement just walked through your office. Um, so they're asking for a forty-five million dollar budget. Uh, cut from police budget. They want to expand the investment with that money. So replacement behavior. They want to give that money to community-led organizations. And they also want people to do what's in their power to stop police force and enacting violence on their community members. So as behavior analysts, just in general, you're probably thinking, well, then how can I show up for that? listen to the demands first and then create. But I, I want to go back to um, the actions that you take as a workplace. So these are just a few things that you could do. Fundraise for local organizations that are committed to ending police brutality and abolishing prisons. This is putting your mouth, money where your mouth is. These are actions that's going to show your employees that you actually mean what you say. Um, and I wrote this list not as a way for you to just like say, oh, let's do this one and, and show something. Once again, I talked about culture and it being ongoing. So you can decide to pick one and let that be it. But eventually you're likely going to still contribute to the larger issue that black folks are having in the workplace. You could plan an action. Um, I saw yesterday at the protest that there were some companies out there and, you know, company for black lives. Imagine that, like the power in that. <clears throat> Invite local organizers to train your staff in nonviolent organizing or resistance. And then from a behavior analytic lens, invite your staff to actually use those behavior analytic principles to enhance their own knowledge. How do you, how do you take what you know and then now you, you're having these conversations with your staff that are relevant socially and behavioral, like, and, and um, conceptually systematic. And you're able to allow your staff to use that and find power within themselves to enact change in the world. I want to make a comment or a statement, rather, that even if you're like a small organization and you don't have any person of color on staff, that doesn't mean you are exempt from these things. That doesn't mean you don't have to do these things. Because yep. I, I can imagine people are being like, oh, well, this, you know, like, I, I, we're all white. Like, this doesn't affect me. Mm -hmm. And I call BS because it does. And it's not like, oh, we're planning for when we do have, um, you know, somebody. No, that, that's not it. That's, mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with that. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Yep. Um. Um, some other things, organize racial justice healing events. Bring people on that do meditation that are culturally relevant. Um, bring folks on that can also talk about anti-racism. Start a book club. You can do, you can provide incentives to that book club if you want to, if you want to throw some uh, positive reinforcement inside of there. Um, share local events or rallies. Like if there's stuff happening in your community, share those for your employees. Offer breaks and disconnection. Production is key for capitalism. So folks are wary when they're, well, what, 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 what do you mean? Our staff allow breaks and disconnection, allow them to take a day off. Going back to what I said earlier, your, your staff members are going to be more happy with your place, your culture, um, or the environment's the environmental culture when they are seen and heard. And, and so allow those breaks so that they can come back 
and be productive. Um, and that's not, that shouldn't be the only reason. A lot of those breaks, once again, coming from an empathy side, because it's hard to produce. Like, I have not really produced work this week. As a business owner, I'm like, oh. And then you feel that. That's another thing to feel. Like, I'm failing because I have stuff to do. And I can't be here for my staff because I'm feeling it myself too, right? And so um, you have to work around that. Um, so uh, more that you can do, share art, share joyful moments. And then share those moments, joyful moments of resistance. Because if you are an activist, then you know when you go to these protests, there's music, there's poetry, there's so much that's happening. Share that because there's joy in the resistance. There's joy in our lives. So like make sure that we're uplifting that. And if you follow our page, you know that we made it a point to post Black joy in these times to connect with that. Yeah, I think what gets shown is just riots and anger and mm -hmm. hate. And you have done such a good job of teaching me and the things that you share is um, that there's beauty and strength and that doesn't always come in the form of riots, right? And like you're saying, art, music, poetry, all of those things, like some of just the, the videos that you shared yesterday, the pictures that you shared. Um, and I can only imagine how hard it is to get all of that and to put it on social media all while engaging in that too, like to try to stay present in the moment, but, but, um, but do that um, is to try to change your frame into how you see that. I know we didn't talk about like riots or anything like that, but that is, I think that all of that, um, I'm not going to get into that conversation, but that is what gets the focus. Um, all of the other more like nonviolent actions that you're talking about that um, are like just these beautiful demonstrations of strength and, and courage kind of get over overlooked in the media. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how you feel about that. And then I do have one other thing too, real fast before I forget, because I know it's going to go where you went and you said like start an anti-racist training or like book clubs with incentives for me as an employee. And I remember being, um, maybe even like the lower ranks, there were always these things where they were the social events or something where it was like, come join us for this, but it was hard enough to do your job um, and to make enough hours or whatever it was to, to meet the expectations. But now I'm expected to come here and to do this too. If, if it is truly valuable to you, pay your employees. Yeah, that. that's true. Have that time be paid. I will pay you <laughs> to read the book and to, to join into this book club. And if you choose to do it, you know, um, how, like, how much does that show? Like we are willing, like, this is so important to us that we are willing to have this, to, to pay for you mm -hmm. all to be a part of. And two, the people that you're bringing on, like you were saying, like healing events, um, those things, like you're saying, like, don't just have, they need to be, people who understand what this is about just don't bring on another white person you know who's a counselor to counsel people through racial trauma right like i don't know if that if you can speak to that at all does that yep uh, let me go on a rant real fast behavior analysts listen up because i said on the show we need to look to other fields that have done the work social workers and counselors and i've said it even within that context that even they don't have it right oh my goodness can you consider fields that have a running start to talk about equity and justice and they still don't have it right. Please don't think we're going to say the word tomorrow, but number one with that, um, counselors, if, if you're bringing on someone, there are counselors that still get upset by the mere mention 
I, I and so we're on these Facebook groups with all the, of our groups. And so I'm in one um, with folks and a client asks the counselor if they had any training in cultural competency and if they had any experience working with people of color and their issues. And this counselor took offense, took offense enough to come make a status and say that how ridiculous she thought it was. It's in our ethics code. We have, te- we have trainings on this throughout our coursework. So, um, so yeah, please, when you go hire someone, don't just go out and seek a mental health therapist or a counselor and say, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to let them do this. First of all, as much as possible, look for people that are from the community that are doing the work, number one, because if you're seeking someone out, you're likely paying them. So seek someone from the community first. If you can't find them, then um, go ahead and make sure that you are vetting them. Vetting them. We talked about functions of behavior. Speaking to these types of uh, topics that there are so many different reinforcers for it. So if you're paying someone to talk about it, you can guarantee they'll try to talk about it. And you need to be aware of that. So focus on the community, the person, the persons that are most impacted. Look for those first. And if you're doing the work yourself, guess what? You're going to know how to vet that person. You're going to know what's in alignment with what's been written before you because you're doing the work on yourself. So that's how you do your checks and balances. Um, and that's a great, that's a great point. Um, outside of all of this though, I want to make sure that I talk about you're not just responding to police brutality. So on this other side, um, oh, I, I do see that this is my old um, one that I gave you too. So here we have, <laughs> good. it's written twice. Yes. And if anybody wants the PowerPoint, I can send it to you with the new updated one because I have another version on my computer. Yeah, there are some disconnections. So mm-hmm. oh, wait, real fast, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Not to interrupt you. I don't want to forget. Um, Dr. Ferris taught us or taught me, I don't know if she said it on our podcast, but it was in one of the workshops that I took with her, that your money is powerful um, and it can be used. So even like the smallest thing. So she was saying the book White Fragility, who was written by a white person. Yeah. That is not something that she recommends people go buy. She said she has a copy and whoever wants to read it, she shares it. And she said, like, you don't need to be spending your money and putting it back into that. The The information can be useful. Yeah. So if you're thinking, okay, for my staff, I'm going to go buy everybody copies of White Fragility and we're going to pay them to do that. There's still more that you can do in that and not buy something from that is written by a black person where that money and go directly to the source. You might pay more. Don't go to Amazon where a large chunk of that money is then going to go to benefit another white guy who doesn't have to like can avoid taxes taxes and all that stuff, you know, go to the, that's I've, I've almost started to at all costs, like eliminate Amazon Mm -hmm. um, for that, for that reason. Um, So books that I don't go to Amazon to purchase books. I go to locally owned stores. Look at who owns that store look online to find black independent owned bookstores or publishing companies or things like that. Like there are so many things that you can do. You just have to critically think about all of these things. And I'm still learning. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I'm going to shut up now. Perfect. You know. <laughs> so the changes that were supposed to be on this one, that's not there. Um, where it says pay your staff fairly, that's supposed to say pay your staff equitably. Um, 
So obviously we're talking about police brutality, even in Minneapolis. What we what we see is not just the fight about police brutality in Minneapolis. It's a fight to tear down that entire system. Minneapolis is a place that has um, extreme gaps between their races. So for example, the poverty rate for black people in Minneapolis is 32% higher than their counterparts. 76% of white people in Minneapolis own homes versus 24% of black people in that area. The median household income for black people in Minneapolis is $30,000. That's $100,000 of a difference to um, the highest median income in that, in that um, area. And so if you're compelled to move for this, I need us to be compelled to move for the entire system that is faulty. Um, and so paying your staff equitably is going to be what you can do to show up for, for that community as well, for our community. Um, the other one that says offers break, offer breaks and disconnection twice, that's actually supposed to say divest from prisons. If you are a corporation or a, a place that gives money to private prison, you have stocks in private prison, do not put your face, do not create a brochure. Do not tell me that you have empathy for my community and you are part of the reason that my community has this issue. Divest from prisons, defund the police. Do not give donations to police forces. We talked about replacement behaviors, Replace the behavior, give that money to a community organization. We focus so much on aversive control in this country. B.F. Skinner taught us about aversive control in this country. We know what punishment looks like for our, for our learners. It's temporary. You are not addressing the root cause. Go back, because we also talked about on this show, and I mentioned it earlier, um, Angela Davis's book, because she breaks all that down too. Um, if, put your money where your mouth is. Take that money out of the police departments and put that back in the hands of the communities that need them. So that's how you show up. Another way is give your black uh, employees support when dealing with racist behaviors from clients and colleagues. I can't tell you enough. I just did a study for uh, uh, implicit bias with Vanessa Bethia Miller and Sean Capel and how many respondents reported that their employers did not show up for them um, when dealing with racist behaviors from colleagues and clients. So you care? address the people that's in your workplace that are perpetuating those issues. And then lastly, this is personal. So I should have left this out, but vote in the interest of the community. You, who you are as a leader is also personal. You're showing up for like, you're showing up as yourself too. And so uh, if you want to be a better leader, for our community, then vote in the interests of our community. So I wanna also make sure to say and remind you all that we aren't free until we all are free, right? And so if black lives are most impacted, then call it for what it is. We're most impacted by our police injustice, by our criminal injustice system and the police force. Um, the actions that I took as a leader this week, or yeah, this past week, when it happened, when the world erupted, I sent out a company email. This ain't easy work. I'm deeply impacted and I had to be a leader for my employees. I had to figure out the right words to say for my employees, how to let them know that I see them, how to offer support and space for them, offered them a break. You can disconnect this week. Label the fact that I am in support of you and how you engage this week. Um, I donated my PPE to them. If you want to protest, 
um, take it. I'll pay that back out of my pocket. Take it. Um, personal conversations. I had a staff member because this space is cultivated. I'm so grateful and thankful. And I don't want to say this is just me, but I've, but if you are a leader, you have an opportunity. You don't have to do what's been done just because it's been done to you or been done before. You can create a new space. It was important. It's been important for me. That's the key. That's the crux of my organization is to create a space where individuals can come to work and be themselves, that they don't have to take off or put on a mask to come to work. And so one of my employees, this was actually yesterday before I was about to go out to protest, we were talking and she broke down to me and she's like, it's just been so much. And she started off by saying, I want to apologize. And I didn't know where the conversation was going because I was like, okay. She's like, I, I want to apologize because I feel like I, I slacked off this week. And I was just like, oh, no, no, no. Like, you know, like, I'm here for you. I understand. Your, your leader, your boss has also slacked off this week. And I, and I made to made sure to let her know that I hear you um, and, and, and reminded her, take a break disconnect. You have that opportunity <clears throat> just because you, I, and I had put on my initial email, you will still get emails from me. I'm still doing stuff, but take your break as you need. So, and so just reminding her, like, you don't have to do no work right now. Like take that time. Um, I stay, I pay my staff. I pay my staff equitably. Um, that that's what you do. Like as your business owner, and I'm not driven by capital. Like, obviously this is a capitalistic field that we're in, but I'm not driven to be number one, top capitalist. I'm driven to the work that I do driven by the work that I do. I'm driven by the people that do the work with me. Take that, like take your money that you're owed and that's fair for you. Um, I provide free counseling to my clients, EAP services for them. And that's important. We need our spaces to, to actually have an outlet outside of work. And so those are just some things that you can do. I feel really good knowing the fact that, and then I had, um, you know, other employees that are like, I'm going to protest. I couldn't sit at home. I'm doing this. I never had that from any employer any space that I've ever worked in where I felt comfortable saying that I'm going out to protest. I had to do that as a response to my employee, I mean, to my colleague being jailed. But I never had a space where I felt comfortable with doing that. And so creating culture that, that makes that okay. You can go to the next slide and we're almost done. Um, so if you are a bystander or a non-black colleague and you're like, well, this, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Like you're talking about leadership behavior. No, you have stuff that you can do as well. Number one, acknowledge. Two, this does not mean, because I talked about like acknowledging from a company level, this doesn't mean that you as a colleague go seek out all of your black colleagues and try to have a conversation with them. Um, I talked about how sometimes a response to trauma is to want to withdraw. So leave Rome and accept the fact that your black colleagues may not want to talk with you about this issue. 
they might need to escape and find connection with their community. Um, and then, you know, also within that as a non-Black colleague, you can keep your judgments and your microaggressions. Keep your comments on political versus apolitical. Um, and then lastly, push. Push your management to incorporate ideas from this training. Push your management to incorporate a culture that recognizes human experiences. You have power as an employee. Always. Don't forget that. Um, so you can go to the next slide. Earlier, I talked about performative action. And I just said, you know, keep your microaggressions to yourself. Just want to remind us to, um, you know, performative action is going to be the behaviors that you engage in that center the majority or the least impacted. Um, or I should say indirectly impacted, okay? Because everyone's impacted by white supremacy. Everyone's impacted by state-sanctioned violence, but indirect versus direct impact. So that would have been a better term. But in these moments, refrain from tacting the majority's private events when discussing that or rules or stories that you um, have been told about the majority. Refrain from discussing the topic of your shame, your guilt. All lives matter. Thoughts about what you think about protests and riots, don't care. Don't care that you have something to say now that you see riots happening across this country when you were silent when things were happening prior. I don't care about your behavioral definition of a riot. I care if you want to stop riots from happening in a way that you put the onus back on the folks that are in charge of the riots happening, which are the folks that are murdering people um, in the street, the fact that the criminal justice system is housing black and brown individuals intentionally. So um, that's, that's where we go with that. So that is the end of my talk. I forgot, oh my goodness, forgot to give the buzzword. So I made, if you want your, um, if you want your CE credit, you have to listen to the whole thing. That's fine. Um, well, what I was going to say is maybe we can um, find like little things, um, questions they can answer. Um, oh, yeah. I, That's I, better. I, I kind of was, I, I didn't want to interrupt you. There were certain times and then I would forget. So it's all good. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, there are a couple questions that I had that we can. Okay. So we'll, that'll be what you do for this show then. You have to answer a few questions to get your CE credits. So I hope you were paying attention. And so I just want to end this one. You can scroll to the next, those, that's the reference list. And then you can scroll to the contact. So that's my email address. That's our email address, beautifulhumanscast at gmail.com. And I just want to end with Angela Davis uh, quote, you have to act as if it were radically, um, as it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time all the time all the time there you go that's the end thank you so much for sharing that with us and uh i think i think for me like the thing that kept showing up was that like you kept saying do the work do the work and i think so many times people who want to do good they just want to be told what to do and that's not the way it works. And so reading, 
and learning and listening. Um, you know, if you want to consider doing the work, like there, that's a response class and there's not just a couple things that you need to do that's going to solve the problem. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, there's, go listen to the, the voices that have out there that, like you said, that this work has been going on for decades. Yeah. This is not <laughs> something new. So. Um, and I have an idea while behavior analysts are focused on, um, new behavior analysts are focused on like changing things. If you don't have a backing, um, or if you haven't done any work within yourself, uh, to deal with this issue, what I would suggest is that behavior analysts get fluent with the way that the world speaks about these issues first. Maybe you can write programming on that. Maybe you can develop verbal fluency on that. Um, because we talked about mentalism on the show before too. And if you think that that's not, if you think that behavior analysts don't need to get fluent in the way that people speak regularly, you have been misinformed. You are not going to show up with your scientist brain and say, guess what? Transformation of stimulus function and because of antecedent manipulations and, and they're going to just stop. I've been in this movement for so many years. And I have to sit down and think about how to carry over what I know and, and, and make that, make ourselves say the same thing. You know what I mean? So maybe we can start there. How can behavior analysts get fluent in the way that the world speaks? That's how we become more socially valid folks. You have to get on people's level. Anyway, rant done. I was waiting <laughs> for you to drop your mic at that point but I know yeah. it's like, like exactly <laughs> awesome well that right. concludes our show yes it does thank you so much for listening to our show and thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us tune in next time